2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, this is awesome. The Apostle Paul makes a very profound statement to his spiritual son, Timothy. And this is what he said, 2 Timothy 2, 2. And he says, all that you have learned from me, confirmed by the integrity of my life, deposit into faithful leaders who are competent to teach the congregations the same revelation. Uh, we've broken this down in weeks past, but essentially what he's saying is what, what I, Paul, have taught you, Timothy, you teach other faithful leaders who will be able to teach others. He's essentially laying out a four-generation leadership plan. That is the power of discipleship. I mean, how many of you would love to, to have a security in the fact that, you know what, when I'm dead and gone, I'm going to have my we're going to have our children to take things over, and if they do well, our grandchildren are going to take things over, and our great-grandchildren. Four generations is what the Apostle Paul is talking about. And so uh, how many of you would like our, our church and ministry to have that sort of longevity? Uh, me too. Praise God. Now, you don't have to turn there. You all know Matthew 28 and verse 19, Jesus gives us what we call the Great Commission. And I just want to share the very first sentence of that. He says, go, therefore, and make disciples. Everyone say, make disciples. That's our topic for the day. But let's pray and ask the Lord's hand over this message before we go even uh, any further. Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that it is powerful, that it is effective. It's life-changing and transforming. And so, Lord, we just invite you right now to come and to be a part of this time. Lord, I ask for an anointing to rest upon me that under the authority and under the power of your Holy Spirit, I would preach as I ought to. Lord, I ask that you would anoint every listener within the sound of my voice those in this room, those joining us online by podcast, however they may be, let us have ears to hear and eyes to see and a spirit that perceives what it is you're speaking to us. And Lord, I bind the works of the enemy. He who would seek to distract, distort, or uproot the word even as it comes forth today, we ask you to bless our time together in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody say, amen, amen. You may be seated. Well, our topic for the day and the title of my message is Make Disciples. Everyone say, Make Disciples. We've talked in, in previous weeks about how Jesus discipled he, uh, essentially through small groups. He had a small group of 12 individuals, and he multiplied leaders. We talked about how the Jesus model, essentially what Jesus did is he would demonstrate for people. He would show how it was to preach, how to heal, how to deliver, how to do all of these things. And then he empowered others to do the very same things that he was doing. The disciples were sent out and they preached and they healed and they delivered. Uh, and then Jesus also had this teaching process where he'd instruct them. If they blew it, he didn't kick them out. You're not a, a disciple any longer. No, he would instruct them, and he would teach them. If they got things right, he would encourage them. This is why that worked. Jesus, even demons were able to come out when we prayed in your name. Well, let me tell you why that worked. And so Jesus taught. And then last week, we talked about what it means, the cost of being a true disciple of Jesus. And you'll remember we broke down the verse where Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. 
Well, this week, we're going we're gonna to talk about making disciples. And I just, I, I'm going to, I want to lay a foundation. And really, honestly, if you're, if you're going to pay attention to any part of my sermon, I want you to pay, a, pay attention to this first part, okay? Because if we can just get, even if you miss my three points, uh, if you get this first part, we're going to do pretty well. Uh, you'll notice here that Paul and Timothy, I mean, these guys were faithful and godly disciple makers. How many of you want to, how many of you want to make disciples in your life? I mean, every single one of us ought to. You understand one day we're going to answer to God for the lives that we impacted for his namesake. Not just how many people we preached to, not if we led a Bible study, not if we served in X, Y, and Z, but who did we impact for eternity? Did we help anybody look more like Jesus throughout our lifetime? We'll all give an account for that. And that's an important thing. And it's our goal. In fact, one of our core values in KC is uh, as a pastor and our ministers, everybody in leadership has the same goal. I want to help you look good on judgment day. Somebody better say thank you, Jesus. I mean, I want you to look good on judgment day, that one day when you stand before God Almighty and you give an account for your life, I believe that if you will Listen to the preacher. If you'll do your best to hear me and, and even follow my example, I try and live my life in a way that if you will emulate me, you're going to look okay on judgment day. Okay? Does that sound like a good deal to you? That doesn't sound very fair to me. Do you understand that I actually get judged by the way you live your life? That's not very fair if you ask me. So uh, please help me look good on Judgment Day and help you look good on Judgment Day. Amen? Okay, that's pretty weak. You're making me nervous about Judgment Day. <laughs> um, but you want to know why Paul, this is, this is really what I want to emphasize here. Do you want to know what made Paul a great apostle, a great disciple maker? I, I want you to pay attention. He lived a life worth imitating. The Apostle Paul lived a life worth imitating. In fact, you'll notice he says many times over, this was a frequent theme in his preaching and his teaching in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. In the Passion, it says, I want you to pattern your lives after me just as I pattern mine after Christ. He said the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 in verse 16. He said, the same thing in Ephesians chapter 5 in verse 1. He said the same thing in Philippians chapter 3 and in chapter 4. It was a common theme where Paul says, listen, imitate me. Everybody say, imitate me. If you want to be a great disciple maker, live a life that is worth imitating. Live a life that is worth imitating. Before we really dig into this, you know there are gifts, there are talents, there are abilities, there are skills and experiences in your life that are worth passing on to somebody else. Do you know that? It's one of the reasons that we, uh, that we do like fire starters and where we, where we prophesy into uh, the gifts and the calling and the talents that we see. Even if you got saved yesterday, even if you're not yet saved, you understand that everybody has something of value in their life that is worth passing on to somebody else. Do you believe that? 
I sure hope so. And we need to gain a confidence that God has put something special on the inside of us that is worth passing on. You think about this. Paul said, imitate me. You know what that tells me? I don't believe the Bible would ask us to do anything unless the Lord actually, you know, the, the, God's not hanging out carrots on sticks in front of us, you understand. If, if God says, imitate Paul as we imitate Christ, guess what? That means that you can look like Jesus, and it also means that you can look like Paul. You know what Paul looked like? Paul was a dead raiser. Paul was a powerful preacher and teacher of the gospel. Paul was a miracle worker. Paul was able to speak to the demon-possessed and see them set free. And Paul is saying, imitate me. I want you to think about the implications of that. And beyond that, you find somebody who sees potential in you. It's important for us to be discipled. Not only do we need to imitate Paul, we need to imitate Christ, but we need to live lives that are worth imitating. Everybody say imitate. You know what that means, right? We all we have all done this uh, growing up where, uh, you know, our, our, our sibling or a friend, somebody we're wanting to annoy that they do something and we just copycat them, right? You know, we've all done this, okay? You just copy them and you irritate them. But Paul is saying he lives his life in such a way that you can imitate him because he's imitating Christ. And I believe that each and every one of us are to live in that way. In fact, I, I want to give you one more example of this just before I get into to my points this morning. One of the most fascinating and stunning verses in all of Scripture, I believe, is found in James 5.17. Now, James, what he has done is he has just listed a number of things that you and I are able to walk in, talking about healing the sick, the forgiving of sins, freedom from oppression and guilt, the fact that you and I can pray passionate prayers. But then this is what he says in James 5.17. He uses Elijah as an example. And he says, Elijah was a man just like us. I want you to think about that. Elijah was a man. Elijah, who healed a leper. Elijah, who spoke to the heavens and it did not rain for three and a half years. And then later spoke again to the rain and it did rain. Elijah, who had the power to call down fire from heaven. Elijah, who outran horses supernaturally. Elijah, who produced a spiritual son who did twice as much as he did. What's your point, Pastor? The Bible says that he was a man just like you and I. Have you ever thought about that? That God, if you could use Elijah, sometimes we think about Bible characters like they're some superhero. Like, well, of course Elijah could do that. He was a prophet of the Lord. Of course Elijah could do that sort of thing. Of course the Apostle Paul could do that. He's the Apostle Paul. But the Bible is telling us that Elijah was a man just like you are. In fact, another translation says he was a man with the same weaknesses and frailties that you have. Oh my goodness, what is my point? There is no limit to the potential a man or a woman of God has who will submit to the process of being and making disciples. Let me say that again. There's no limit to the potential a man or a woman of God has who will submit to the process of being and making disciples. 
We encourage people to evaluate their life on the basis of how many disciples they make. Have you produced something of quality in your life in somebody? Have you ever taught somebody how to pray? Have you ever taught somebody how to worship? Have you ever led somebody to Jesus? Have you ever invited? In fact, I've been so blessed. We've got a couple that was just added to our church, them and their two children, because a visiting family from our church, a visiting individual, you guys know Tom. Uh, uh, I think he'll be in our second service. Uh, I don't see him here right now. He'll be in our second service. He's just here for a, a few short weeks every, every year around this time. And he met a couple who's staying in the same condo that he is, and he just invited these guys to come to church. Just invited them. And guess what? They came, I believe, four weeks ago, and they have absolutely fallen in love with our church. I mean, they have not missed a service. They've been here on Thursdays, on Sundays. They just talked to me this last week. Hey, it's important. Would you dedicate our children to the Lord? We never did that. We've never been in a church. He's reading the Gospel of Matthew for the first time and asking me all kinds of great questions about this. And I'm just thinking, that's all come because Tom just invited somebody to come to church. You understand that one day when Tom stands before God in heaven, the Lord is going to look at him, and the Lord's going to have a record of the fact that he invited this couple to be a part of the church. I want some stuff like that on my resume as well. Are you with me? Okay, that's, um, are you with me, church? Okay, praise God. So last week, last week I, I heard a testimony. In fact, my friend Ryan, this really, really blessed me. Because sometimes you don't know what impact a simple invitation or an opportunity can give somebody. And this last week, my friend Ryan, he was with me, of course, and uh, uh, he shared with me, there's a couple. And I remember when I met this couple. In fact, they had, they had come to a service that I was preaching in. And I remember I looked down and I saw this man and his wife, and they were like three kids. I think they've got five now, no exaggeration. Uh, but they were down in the altars with their three or four kids. And, and something just leaped on the inside of me, and I just said, you know what? I, I just I feel like we're supposed to run together. I feel like we're supposed to do ministry together. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know anything about you. It was literally the first time that I'd ever met this couple. And what began to happen is, I mean, these guys met with me, and we found out that their marriage was in peril. They were on the verge of divorce. They'd had some stuff happen that had really, really rocked them. And, uh, and it was just incredible. I gave them a place. They served in the prayer ministry. In fact, uh, he, he's of Spanish heritage, and when I would go and speak in these Spanish churches, uh, I would have him translate for me. And you think, well, pastor, aren't you Spanish? Aren't you? Yeah, I, I am, but I'm what you call a Taco Bell man. Mexican, right? You know what that is? A Taco Bell Mexican is like I, I look, I'm brown and I got the last name Barrientos, but, uh, uh, but that's about as far as my Spanish goes is the ability to say my own name. And so uh, I'm about as Americanized as they come. And so I'd have this guy come and preach with me. And the reason I even share that, I simply gave this guy opportunity in place in my life. Hey, come and pray with me. Hey, come to this church and minister alongside me. And what was incredible is now you fast forward. That's, I mean, that's five, six years ago that all of that transpired. And I didn't know the depth of all of this, but my friend was telling me, you know, she works for my company. He's running this restaurant. And he said that it was because I gave them place. It saved their marriage. 
It saved their children. They're all serving in the house of God. They feel the call to ministry. In fact, they even said they want to move to Hawaii and they want to open a restaurant here and they want to serve in ministry alongside us. Praise God. So you pray for them. Uh, uh, Rigo is his name. And uh, Rigo and Leah, like we need more Leahs in our church. We'll have five Leahs in our church. But, uh, but it's awesome. And it wasn't a difficult thing. I just simply gave them place. And so the question that I have for us today as we, as we really establish this foundation is, are you living a life that's worth imitating? Are you living a life that's worth uh, imitating? I heard one pastor ask the question, what would the church look like if everyone served the way that you did? You just imagine if everybody in the church gave the way that you did or prayed the way that you did. If people imitated your study habits or whatever it may be, if people loved the way that you did, would people come into this church and feel loved? Would we feel the foundation had been laid in worship? Would we feel the foundation had been laid in prayer? What uh, in prayer, rather, would how would the church look if everybody imitated your life? I know that's coming on heavy, but I'm gonna I'm gonna help us. Jesus gave us a couple things about being a disciple maker. Uh, three life lessons, and and here they are. First of all, first of all, Jesus said, as a disciple maker, we must model worship. Everyone say model worship. If you are going to be an effective disciple maker, one of the essentials is we must model worship. Well, where's this coming from? It came in John chapter 4. It's an interesting episode. Jesus meets a woman at a well. Most are probably familiar with this story. Jesus was traveling from one region to the next, and the Bible says that he actually stopped uh, because he was thirsty. And I, I actually like that little point there. You know, some people think that Jesus was just walking like, you know, uh, under divine inspiration constantly around the clock. And he was. He was sensitive to the, the will and direction of his father. He never said anything out of place. But the Bible says flat out in John 4, the reason that he stopped at that well was he was thirsty. And can I just encourage you? This is like a bonus point for you. Sometimes God's divine Divine interventions or divine interruptions will come out of the most natural feeling places in our life. I'm just at the grocery store getting what I need to get. I'm just getting a bottle of water because I'm thirsty. That's what set up this episode right here and gave us one of the most powerful accounts in all of Scripture. And so be sensitive to those moments where we don't ever clock out of being a Christian, you understand. We don't ever clock out, well, I'm not on the Great Commission today because I'm just tired. Well, that doesn't work. Praise God. But they had a conversation. And so Jesus is talking to this woman at the well about salvation and what it means to be a true disciple. And they lead up to this whole thing. I mean, Jesus has, you know, he's he's reading her mail. She realizes you're a teacher. And they know you're a prophet. and, And the view keeps on going up. And then she asks Jesus a question. Or really, she makes a statement. She says, Jesus, the Jews say that we are to worship in the temple in Jerusalem. But my people, she was a Samaritan, my people say that we're supposed to worship on this mountain over here. Who's right, Jesus? Do we worship in the temple or are we supposed to worship on the mountain? And I tell you, I meet people like this all the time. Are you a Christian? 
Well, I go to this church. I go to the temple. Are you a Christian? Well, my church is the beach. I worship out. I worship outside. Have you ever heard somebody say something like that? And, and here's what Jesus responded to that. He says, do you know what it takes to be a true disciple of mine? It's not the fact that you go to a temple or a church. It's not that you pray on a mountain or on the beach. Jesus didn't say the beach, but you understand what I'm, I'm making an illustration. He said, it's not that you do these, this or that, but in verse 23, this is what he said. True disciples worship the Father God in spirit and in truth. You want to know how you know you're a true disciple? Not that you attend church, not that you pray on the beach or on a mountain, but that you worship God. Everyone say worship. You worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, this is, this is really big, and I boy, I could spend a, a weeks just preaching on this one thing. But when we worship in spirit, that's the Greek word pneuma. Everyone say pneuma. That word actually means breath. It could be like breath of God, a, a wind of the Spirit, uh, and so forth. But what he's talking about here is literally when we worship, we engage three different things. And I want you to take note of this. What does it mean to be a worshiper? First of all, it means that we worship with our mind. Second, we worship with our soul or our emotions. But it also means that we worship with our heart. This is very important. How do I know that I'm a worshiper of God? Well, we engage the Lord with our mind. Many Eastern religions, they'll say, oh, empty your mind. Empty your mind if you want to be, uh, you know, if you want to have some supernatural encounter. Don't do that. Don't empty your mind. Don't blank your mind. No, engage your mind. Think about the words that are being sung during the worship service. Pay attention when the preacher is preaching the sermon. Hallelujah. Let your mind engage the Lord in worship and in prayer. Sometimes I, I, I just, I remember when it just kind of clicked with me. There were songs that I was singing and I was reading it right off the screen and I'm just singing. I'm holding the melody and it occurred to me, I'm not even paying attention to the words that I'm singing right now. Engage your mind. Think about the things that are being said and done. This is part of true worship. We have our mind. Everyone say mind. We have our mind engaged in worship. And when we deal with the soul, that means that we've got emotions over this thing. Oh, uh, that's our heart. And there's, that's a, 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 with our emotions, there's a whole lot that could be said about our emotions. Um, in fact, my son pointed out to me, I, I didn't realize this, but he was, he was watching me preach. I can't even remember when this was, but he was watching me preach, and he saw me begin to weep as I was preaching on a certain point. And he pointed out to me, I didn't realize this until that moment. He's like, Daddy, I've never seen you cry until that moment. Like, that was just kind of a stunning thing. You know, I, I didn't grow up in a house where boys weren't allowed to cry or anything like that, but I'm just a, a generally uh, not a super emotional kind of person. But there's something about my relationship with the Lord that really stirs me so deeply at times. And I tell you, if your emotions are never engaged in the play, I mean, how many of you get excited when you get in the house of God? Or how many of you, even sometimes you get angry when you see, you know, certain, maybe something dishonorable happening in the house of God or to the people of God? I mean, my, my emotions get stirred with things pertaining to God. 
That's one of the ways that I know that I'm worshiping authentically, my emotions, and then our heart. Now, I'm not even going to try and uh, unpackage uh, the heart. Uh, You guys ought to go and listen to Perry Stone and what he preached. The first two nights of uh, of these revival services he did at the cathedral, he preached about the heart. And boy, it opened my eyes to a perspective on the heart that I have never even... When he was talking... Were you guys in those services, anybody? I mean, when he was talking about the fact that the heart has memories. Let me just give you one example. This was just so, so crazy. I mean, he's talking about individuals who received heart transplants and how they would get heart transplants. He talked about this one lady who got a heart transplant, and when you get a transplant, you generally don't know who the donor was, especially if it's a heart transplant because that means that person's dead, right? And so, uh, so this lady gets a heart transplant, and all of a sudden, her appetite begins to change. All of a sudden, she starts craving, what was it, like beer in cheeseburgers or something like that, which was not a part of her diet or her attitude at all. But there was something that uh, that literally the, 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 she found out later, the man who had donated the heart was a beer drinker and a uh, cheeseburger eater and, uh, you know, was a motorcycle rider. And all of a sudden, she had all of these desires. They shared another, I mean, this is crazy. There was a young boy who received a heart transplant, didn't know it at the time, but received it from a little girl. These are documents. This isn't even like church testimonies. These are like medical, uh, coming out of the yeah, science world, okay? And a little boy gets a heart from a little girl. And all of a sudden, she begins every night having nightmares that this man comes into his room and kills and kills him or kills her. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a weird thing. Has this dream, this guy comes in and continues to kill. And it only happened after he received this heart transplant. Well, they found out as they began to dig into this, he went to a, like a psychiatrist and all this, and they began to dig in and found out that the person he had received the heart from had been murdered in their home. And they began to ask him, describe the man who killed you. And he began to describe this and come to find out it was the next door neighbor to the girl who had been murdered. And the point of all of this was so they were actually able to to identify and even even eventually bring accusation to this guy who they had no leads on. But here, I mean, is that just crazy to you? Here's, Here's the point of that whole thing. Our heart has a memory. In fact, he talked about how our heart has more emotion receptors and, and, and givers than even our brain does, which is mind-boggling. And when you begin to unpackage some of these things, you'll understand, boy, Jesus meant a whole lot when he talked about the heart, having faith in Jesus. If we, if we have faith as a mustard seed and do not doubt in our heart, just begin to do study on all these verses that deal with the heart. Jesus had a lot to say about it, including this, our topic for the day. If you want to be a disciple, you got to make sure that your heart is believing in Jesus. This is why from Sunday school, how do you know? How do you know that you got saved? Well, I asked Jesus to come into my heart. And that's a fine prayer to pray. We just say, Jesus, come into my heart, transform my heart, transform my life. Give me some new memory. In fact, I like what Perry Stone said, and I'll, I'll echo his sentiments. If I ever need a heart transplant, something ever happened, you guys make sure you find like a Holy Ghost, like righteous 
man of God, okay, I don't want to have any weird, uh, uh, don't, don't bring me like some alcoholic guy's heart or something, you know, some adulterer or something like that. I want to, you know, get me a righteous guy. Hopefully I'll come out of that thing even better than I am right now. Praise God. But I'm not going to need a heart transplant. Amen. Okay, let's move on. Praise God. Then he says, so if we're going to be a disciple of Jesus, what's, what's the first thing? We must worship, and this is it, in spirit and in truth. You know what that in truth means? Let me just explain this. This is going to help you. To worship God in truth. The book of Hebrews explains this. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 24, it says, The Messiah did not enter into an earthly tabernacle made by men, which was an echo or a shadow of the true sanctuary, he entered into heaven itself to appear before the face of God in our place. Did you catch that? Let me read it to you again. The Messiah did not enter an earthly tabernacle made by men, which is an echo or a shadow of the true sanctuary. He entered into heaven itself to appear before the face of God in our place. There's a lot that could be said on this. In fact, I've got a book. It's called uh, The Priest, the Tabernacle, and the Offerings. It's a reference book. It's terribly boring. You don't want to read it. But literally what it is, is it will take all of these Old Testament symbols. Like, what does it mean when you walk in and you see this table here? What does it mean when you see this bowl here? What does it mean when you see this candlestick? You understand every one of those things has a New Testament parallel. Oh, that represents the Holy Spirit that would come and set us on fire. Oh, that represents the prayers of the believers that are being offered up to God. And when you look at the sacrifices that would happen in the temple, we understand that is a picture. It's a prophetic picture, or the writer of Hebrews says, a shadow. It's an echo of what Jesus himself would one day do on our behalf. And so you understand, when people would come into the temple of God, and they would offer an animal, shed its blood to atone for their sins, fast forward now, now Jesus himself stands in the throne room of heaven before God Almighty, having himself been the Lamb of God who shed his blood to forgive us of our sins. This is a huge deal because no longer do you and I, you don't need to go confess your sins to a father, to a priest. You don't need to confess your sins to me. All we need to do is confess our sins to Jesus, who the Bible says is our high priest and and a mediator. You ought to be excited about this. I'm just thankful that I don't have to sit in a confessional and listen to, to everything that you guys did bad. All you have to do is hit your knees and say, Jesus, I failed you right here. Would you forgive me? And guess what? The Bible says that he's faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. Do you get excited about this? I'm thankful that I don't have to go confess every time. I'm definitely thankful that I don't have to sacrifice animals on your behalf uh, in order for, because Jesus was that. And what the what Jesus is saying is, is here, hey, you, you talk about praying on a mountain. You talk about worshiping in a temple. Let me tell you what true disciple is. When you worship me with all of your heart, with all of your emotions, with your mind engaged, but you worship me in the real way, not some, not just some false, not even, it's not a false, but not just some representation of what I really want to do. Listen, communion, communion is, is wonderful if you understand what it is. 
If all we're doing is going through religious motions, all we're doing is drinking old grape juice in a stale cracker. How wonderful is that? That's not wonderful at all. But when you understand, this represents a real man who broke his body and shed his blood for me and for my life. That's when this becomes powerful. And that's when we begin. When you understand it in your mind, when your heart engages in this, and when we understand literally the truth behind what begins to happen when we partake of communion, that's when it becomes powerful. Is this making sense to you? We're going to worship in spirit. I know I get excited about this. I don't know if you're getting as excited as I am, but praise God, I'm a worshiper, okay? I had somebody this last week, they were critiquing my preaching. And, uh, and I'm okay with that, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm not a perfect preacher. I know that. Uh, and I'm still learning, but but he they they told me like uh, you know focus on making your application statements. Uh, uh, I, you preach these powerful points, but what does that have to do with me? So here's my application statement. Okay, what does this have to do? What does this have to do with with me with us? Here it is. You want to be an effective disciple maker. Yes, we all agree. We all want to make disciples. Here's the very first thing that we must do: model worship. Express. I'm telling you, when people come in and they see you engaging the Lord as we're worshiping him, when they see you praying passionately, when they see you digging into the word of God, why are you seeking the Lord in all of these different avenues? Because God's done a great work. There's going to be people that say, what has God done in your life? Why are you so hungry for? Why do you worship? Why do you pray? Why do you study? Why do you pay attention? Why do you even go to church and do all of these things? Because I'm worshiping him in spirit and in truth. Does that make sense? Okay, all right. Here's the second thing, number two. Number two, as a disciple maker, we model serving. We model serving. Everybody say serving. Now, this is a big deal. In John chapter 13, I just want to read this to you out of the passion. It, it reads beautifully here. Just, just listen as I, as I read John 13, beginning at verse 1. This is Jesus. So if I am your teacher and Lord, no, 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 no. How did I mess that up? Okay, let me, let me open it here, actually. Jesus knew that the night before Passover would be his last night on earth but before leaving this world to return to the Father's side. All throughout this time with his disciples, Jesus had demonstrated a deep and tender love for them. But now he longed to show them the full measure of his love. Before the evening meal began, the accuser had already planted betrayal in the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Jesus was aware the Father had placed all things under his control. He came from God and was about to go back to be with him. So he got up from the meal. Picture this. He took off his outer robe. That was his priestly garment. That was his, his position of honor. That was, that was how they knew that this is a rabbi. This is a man of God. This is a prophet. He took off that outer robe, and he took a towel, and he wrapped it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' dirty feet and dry them with his towel. Jesus got to Simon Peter, and he objected, and he says, I can't let you wash my dirty feet. You're my Lord. 
Jesus replied, you don't understand yet the meaning of what I'm doing, but soon it will be clear to you. Jesus looked, Peter looked at Jesus and said, you'll never wash my dirty feet, never. But Peter, if you don't allow me to wash your feet, Jesus responded, you will not be able to share in life with me. Peter said, Lord, if that is the case, don't just wash my feet, but also wash my hands and my head as well. Jesus said, you're already clean. You've been washed completely. You just need your feet to be cleansed. But that can't be said of all of you, for Jesus knew which one was about to betray him. And that's why he said not all of them were clean. Verse 12, after washing their feet, he put on his robe and he returned to his place at the table. And he said, do you understand what I just did, Jesus said. You have called me your teacher and Lord. You're right. That's who I am. So if I'm your teacher and Lord and I have washed your dirty feet, you should follow the example I have set for you and wash one another's dirty feet. Now, do for each other what I have just done for you. I speak to you this timeless truth. A servant is not superior to his master. An apostle is never greater than the one who sent him. So now put into practice what I have done for you, and you will experience a life of happiness enriched with untold blessings. Oh, my goodness. That pretty well preaches my second point altogether. Jesus modeled servanthood. He demonstrated, what does it mean to lead? What does it mean to be a Lord and a teacher? I mean, that's what he said. I am a Lord and a teacher. You have called me, and you have called me rightly so. Let me show you what that looks like. He began to wash their feet. And he says, in the same way I serve you, you, apostles, disciples, serve others. I'm telling you, church, this, this is the mark of being a disciple and being a disciple maker is that you are willing to serve. The Bible says that Jesus was a servant of all. In Philippians 2, 7, it says that he made himself of no reputation. He took on the form of a servant. And Jesus also said, if you want to be first, you must be the very last in the servant of all. In Mark 9, 35, in Mark 10, 44. You see, in the world, we've got this mentality, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut people down so that I can get ahead. People, positions, this job is nothing more than a stepping stone to get a little higher. But in the kingdom of God, we serve our way to the top. We serve. If you're not willing to serve people, in fact, I'll never forget this, uh, I was in Bible school, and there was a, there was a grumpy guy who was, uh, who was in Bible school. He's in the pastoral track, and I'll never forget, he asks uh, our instructor one day, and he says, uh, what do I do if I don't really like people? This is a Christian counseling class. I don't really like people. I don't like spending time with people. Uh, can I maybe have somebody else who's got a passion for counseling? And the guy just looked at him just really dumbfounded that he would even ask such a question. He's like, don't go into ministry. <laughs> and the guy, he didn't even finish Bible school. Praise God. That's a good thing. If you're not willing to serve people, if you're not willing to give for people, in fact, I'm telling you, this, this right here, this concept, 
It will, it will benefit you in marriage. It will benefit you as a parent. It will benefit you as a coworker. This will enhance every area of your life. If you approach this with the same attitude that Jesus did, then listen, I want to be great. That's not a bad thing. How many of you want to be great in life? I want to be great. I don't want to be subpar. I don't want to be bottom of the totem pole. I want to be great in this life. Serve greatly. If you want to be great, serve greatly. Serve everybody that you can. If you want to have responsibility and leadership over many people, be prepared to serve many people. Amen. Let's go on to the last one. Minister Ryland, I'm actually closing. I just got a story I'm going to tell you to illustrate this last one. As a disciple maker, number three, we model witnessing. We model witnessing. So listen, as, as a disciple maker, first of all, we model worship. Amen. Everybody say worship. As a disciple maker, secondly, we model serving. We're going to serve people. We're going to serve one another. But, but here's the last thing. We model witnessing. We model witnessing. In John 20, verse 21, Jesus says, As the Father sent me, I am sending you. And we know that just before he left, he gave us the power, the Bible says, to be a witness in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. And we're going to pray that that very same power would be refreshed and stirred on the inside of us today. And I just want to encourage us, because some of you, man, when I talk about witnessing, and I know I do a lot, well, you get nervous, because I'm, you know, Pastor, I'm not going to stand on a street corner and preach. I'm not going to. I'm not going to do it like a Facebook Live or anything like that and just preach the gospel. But you don't have to. One of, my, one of my favorite things, can I just, this isn't even in my notes, but I think it's important for you to know. In Matthew 28, when he gave the Great Commission, we read it at the very beginning of service. Go, therefore, into all the world and make disciples. Go, go. Everybody say go. You know, I used to preach that real, real passionately, like rebuke people. What part don't you understand, the G or the O? You know, where to go? But if you dig into the language there in the Greek, it's used. This is very interesting. And I hope this liberates some people. It literally means as you are going. As you are going, make disciples. Meaning I'm not shouting at you today. You need to be a witness. Go stand on a street corner today, or you, lest ye be judged. You know, I'm not, I'm not doing it. But here's what I am asking of you. As you go about your life, be a worshiper. Serve one another. And when you get the opportunity, don't be ashamed to witness why it is you're a worshiper, why it is you pray, why it is you attend the house of God. Be a witness. As you go, make disciples. Can I just give you a real practical? So much of discipleship is just allowing people to do life with you. Doesn't mean that you have to have some formal sit-down mentoring meeting. I'll tell you, Minister Ry Lynn is one who I would consider. He's growing as a spiritual son of mine. You want to know why? I mean, we sit down, we have staff meetings and this and that, but that's not where discipleship takes place most of the time. Most of it happens in serving in the trenches together, praying, worshiping, doing 
stuff alongside one. Even fishing together. Now, he's actually my mentor in the realm of fishing because he's better than I am. But I just tell you, so much of it is just allowing people to do life with you. Because sometimes them observing how you speak to your spouse, seeing how it is that you live a life of integrity, not just when you're in church, seeing how it is that you prioritize certain things and you, you, you shun other things, I'm, I'm t- that will speak more to them than your Bible teaching does. This is coming from the preacher you hear. So let's do life together, but we're going to be a witness. Let me give you a, a story as we close. There's a man, so I, I heard this testimony a number of years ago. This really, really stirred me. It was a Baptist pastor. And this Baptist pastor, he was in London. And at the closing of the service, uh, there was a young man who came and shared his testimony. He said, I lived in Sydney, Australia, and one day I was walking down George Street. And this little short white-haired man pops out of a storefront and hands me a gospel track. And he says, are you saved? If you died tonight, would you go to heaven? Hands him this gospel track. I mean, and that's all there was to that encounter. The guy later on reads this gospel track, ends up giving his life to the Lord, which is where this pastor ends up meeting him. Okay? So then this pastor, he flies to Everglade, Australia. He's having a three-day revival. Over the course of that revival, he counsels a woman and wanted to find out, where do you stand with the Lord? Have you been born again? She begins to tell him a story about a strange, short, white-haired man. She was walking in Sydney, Australia. This guy pops out of a storefront, asks her, if you died tonight, Do you know, would you go to heaven or hell? And puts this gospel track in her hand. She ends up reading this thing later on, getting born again, saved, which is where the pastor met. Next, he flew to Mount Pleasant Baptist Church in Perth. These are all true stories. He flew to Mount Pleasant Baptist Church in Perth. After teaching a series, uh, he went out to lunch with some of the elders of the church. He asks at lunch the senior minister, how did you get saved? He said, well, I grew up in the church. I was successful in business. I was a multimillionaire. And naturally, I was elected as an elder in the church. Well, the elder was on a business trip in Sydney, Australia. You guys see where this is going. And he was walking down George Street. And this short little white-haired man pops out of the storefront, says, if you died tonight, would you go to heaven? Hands him this gospel track. And the man responds, I'm an elder in my church. But the man really didn't listen. He pressed him even more. Are you saved? Didn't ask if you're an elder. Are you saved? If you died tonight, would you go to heaven? Well, the guy got so upset, he goes home and he asks his pastor, tells him about this encounter that he had with this man on George Street. The pastor presses him with the same question. Why is this bothering you? Are you saved? If you died, would you go to heaven? The pastor that day ends up leading him to the Lord for the first time in his many years of church attendance. 
This pastor then flies to the UK. He's preaching at a pastor's convention. And upon the closing, there were three elderly pastors who came down and said they had all been saved between 25 and 35 years ago. He's sharing these testimonies during this meeting. Three people come up, three pastors come up and say they were all saved by this same man in Sydney, Australia on George Street. The next week, the pastor flew to the Caribbean. And he's in a similar meeting for missionaries. And he shares these testimonies. Three missionaries come up to him and say they got saved between 15 and 25 years ago by the same man on George Street. The pastor then stopped in Atlanta, Georgia to preach for three days at the Naval Chaplain's Convention. As he was talking with the chaplain general, the head honcho, over a thousand other chaplains, he said years ago, as a soldier, they stopped in Sydney Harbor for supplies. You can already tell where this is going. He's walking down George Street, and out pops this little white-haired man. If you died tonight, do you know that you would go to heaven? The chaplain general took out, uh, he took out this, uh, the, 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 the chaplain took out the pastor for, for lunch, and he says that uh, today, he got born again on that day, and today he oversees over a thousand chaplains. Six months later, this pastor goes and he did a convention for 5,000 Indian missionaries in Northeast India. And at the conclusion of the meeting, an Indian pastor, the guy who organized this 5,000 pastor convention, took the pastor to his home for dinner. He said that he was traveling the world as a Hindu years ago, and he ended up in Sydney for some shopping. He went, and he was going down the street, and out pops this little white-haired man, puts a gospel track in his hand, and said, if you died tonight, do you know for certain that you would go to heaven? Well, he said, he said that he was so distraught by this, he went to his Hindu priest, and he asked him, he said, this is what was said, and it just, it deeply convicted him and so the 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 priest said go back and talk to the man about what what happened and he ends up going talks to the missionary and he ends up getting saved on and on and on there's more i mean there's even three there's uh, several other stories that that went on well to conclude this eight months later this pastor was ministering in sydney and he asked the pastor in that church if he's ever heard of this strange little white-haired man who handed out religious tracts on George Street in Sydney, Australia. And sure enough, this pastor knew, oh, that's Mr. Ginner. He's been down here for years. I think he's retired now, but he might still be in the area. And so this pastor goes down to this shop. He found out what it was and come to find out Mr. Ginner now an old man, still lived above the storefront. He goes up there, and this man is within two days of dying and going home to be with the Lord. This pastor goes in, and he begins to tell him all of these stories that I was just sharing with you. And Mr. Ginner, laying on his bed, is just weeping and weeping and weeping, so deeply stirred by these testimonies that are coming out. And he asks him, why are you so moved by this? And this is what he said. He said, in all of my years in handing out these gospel tracts, he says, I have never personally led anybody to Jesus. I have never known if that did anything for anybody that I gave these tracts to. 
But as this pastor, I mean, they did the math with the chaplains and all of this. The influence is in the hundreds of thousands because one man asked a question and handed out a pamphlet. I tell you, the power to be a witness. It is unbelievable. You don't know what an invite to somebody can do. You don't know. You don't know what a gift of a Bible can do for somebody. You don't know what taking some taking a box of donuts to school and saying, hey, come to a Bible. You don't know what impact that can have for people. I'll tell you, you've probably never heard of Mr. Ginner before today. In fact, nobody has. He didn't have any significant ministry. The guy ran, I think, a barber shop on George Street. During his breaks, he'd go out and hand out gospel tracts. Nobody knows him here until today. But can you imagine the reception this man received as he stepped into heaven? Not known here, famous up there. I'll tell you what, man. I'm going to be a good disciple. I'm going to be a witness for Jesus. Even if all that is, is handing out a pamphlet, giving an invitation, praying for somebody. Amen. Well, why don't you stand? I've, I've gone past my time. But was that a good story or what? Hallelujah. We're going to be worshipers. This is what I want to do. How many of you say, Pastor, now listen, you don't have to have all this figured out, okay? Please. You don't have to have this all figured out. But I want to pray that the Lord would empower us to be and to make disciples. You say, I need to be a better worshiper. My heart's there, my mind's not engaged. My mind's there, but my heart's not engaged. I'm unemotional. About it. Whatever it is, we, we need work in that. You say, Pastor, I... I want to be a disciple maker, but I, I don't serve. I'm not a servant. I'm, I want people to serve me, but I need help in that area. We all need help in that area, son. Or you say, I've never witnessed to anybody. I've never invited anybody, but I want the Lord to give me the power to be a witness. If any of those things fit you, and I tell you, my hand is, I want to be a better worshiper, I want to be a better server, and I want to be a better witness. My hand's up on all three of those. How many of you would say one or more of those fit my heart and what I want the Lord to do in me? Would you just lift up your hand? In fact, why don't you lift both your hands, and let's just pray the Lord would give us power to do that today. Jesus, we just thank you that you demonstrated for us what it means to be a great disciple maker. You did it, and the impact is still touching us today. And God, I just pray every hand that is lifted, Lord, help us to be better worshipers. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth, God. I pray that you would help us, mighty God, in the realm of serving. Lord, that we don't lord over people, we don't make demands of people, but we serve one another. In whatever capacity you've given us as a, as a family member, as a worker, as a minister in the house of God, whatever we do, Lord, we ask that you would help us to serve one another with the same heart that you did, Lord. And God, I pray, even as your word says, that in the last days you would pour out your spirit on all flesh, and that mighty God, you would give us the power to be a witness. Lord, I pray that you would give us power to be a witness. Give us an idea. Give us a burden, whether it's to hand out a track or invite somebody to church or to start a life group or to, uh, to, to tell somebody Jesus loves you. He's got a plan for your life. Lord, I pray that you would give us the boldness and the authority to step out where you have asked us to in the realm of discipleship. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. One last thing I want to pray just before we close. Every head bowed, every eye closed all across this room. I don't ever like to close out a service without giving the opportunity. If you're here and you've never confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, maybe even as I share that story, you hear that that question. If you died tonight, do you know for certain you'd make it to heaven? Or is hell a real fear for you? The Bible says that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and we believe in our heart, one day when Jesus returns or when we die and we meet him, we'll be received into his kingdom forever. So if you're here, nobody looking around, if you say, Pastor, I want to be sure before I leave today that I'm right with God. I want to be sure that my sins are forgiven and that if today were the day that I meet the Lord, I want to be sure that I make it into heaven. If that be you, nobody looking around, would you just lift up your hand so I know who I'm praying for in this place? You say, include me in your prayer. Hallelujah. I see you. I see you. I see you. God bless. I see you. God bless. I see you over there. God bless you guys. I see you in the back there. God bless you. I see you back there. God bless you. Anybody else? Anybody else? Even if you're joining us online, you want you to participate in this. And you let somebody know if you, you pray this. But I want us right now, can we all just pray together right out loud? Everybody pray with me. Pray, dear Jesus, I ask you, Lord, forgive me. I've sinned. Wash me, Jesus. Cleanse me and make me brand new. Take away my sin and give me your righteousness. I ask you, live your life through me. Be my Savior. Be the Lord of my life. Be my very best friend. I give myself to you. Help me to be a disciple and to be a disciple maker. Use me for your glory, Lord. In your precious name I pray. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. God bless you.